everyone, my name is Essen. This is the Brown History Podcast, and you are listening to episode 15 with our guest, Nikesh Shukla. He's a very nice guy, very cool dude. He has his hands everywhere. He's involved in a lot of youth projects. He's a writer. He has a short film on YouTube called Two Dosas, which I highly recommend. I noticed him first when his book came out, The Good Immigrant, in the UK, which was a compilation of essays, nonfiction essays written by people of color who explore and discuss topics like uh, diversity, being a minority in the UK, racism, etc., which is where episode two of the Brown History Podcast came from. There was an essay in that book. A few years later, he made The Good Immigrant, the American version with American writers of color who talk about the same things but also about Trump because you couldn't ignore that fact. And today he has a new book out. It's a memoir addressed to his daughters. It's called Brown Baby, a memoir of race, family, and home. So definitely check that out. Um, anyways, we talk about a lot of things. So I hope you enjoy it. And here we go. I need a theme song. I'm asking you, have you seen Danny Boyle's well, Yesterday with Himesh Patel? And I'm only asking that is because that movie is the reason how I discovered you. So I kind of want to use that as a segue into to the follow-up questions. Now, I'm not asking you if you like the story or not. I'm asking you basically <laughs> <laughs> how you felt uh, that your your friend, I'm assuming, uh, not your, your the he's guy, your he's your boy who's out there in the movie is singing songs from the Beatles, a white UK band. How did you feel about that? You know, it's a weird thing because, uh, so we're the reason that Himesh got that film. So, so like Himesh used to be in this uh, soap called EastEnders in the UK. And I used to watch that with my mom obsessively and you know, Himesh was in it ever since he was a teenager. And me and my mum were always like, this guy is hilarious. I, he is so underutilized with how funny he is. He's so dry, so witty, so his timing is impeccable. And um, when, me and, when me and my friend Sam, Sarmad Masood, we were, um, we were circling around making a short film. And, you know, we were both thinking a lot about um, South Asian masculinity and... You know, I ended up writing an essay about it for Catapult about like um, how South Asian men are always depicted as wanking foreigners. And basically a friend of mine had sent me the link to this article called the three bears theory, which posited like popular culture posits like um, the object of desire in Western popular culture is like the Goldilocks figure, like the busty blonde and the busty blonde is presented with three options. Like, the like the the Asian, be it South Asian, Southeast Asian, East Asian, who is sexually repressed with a small dick, or the black man who is sexually aggressive with the with a big dick, or the perfectly normal, perfectly middle of the road white guy whose dick is just right, and it blew my mind reading that because I was like, oh my god, this is popular. I now understand all of popular culture, and so me and Saramad were really obsessed with like. <clears throat> wanting to do a short film we had an opportunity to do a short film we were like let's do a rom-com and let's do a rom-com where we put a like a nerdy asian guy in it as a romantic lead but we make him look hot and um and i was like i want himesh to do it himesh has to do it and sam was like okay cool we'll see him and himesh had, like he was in the process of leaving eastenders and so he'd like grown his hair out and he looked amazing 
and we were immediately like this is our lead and we did this film called two doses and um he was amazing and it was like the first thing he'd done since eastenders and we like became really great friends and like it toured a bunch of film festivals and um one of those film festivals it won an award that like danny boyle was the judge and danny boyle cast him off the back of seeing two doses which was really amazing because it also made it into all the press notes that danny boyle had seen him in his short film yes now i've seen the film and i think it's amazing to see a south asian romantic lead um it would have been really nice if he'd been going out with a brown girl um i don't think they thought too much about the um about asian households because and, and you know i say this with love to himesh and love to mirasial and sanjeev basco who are absolute heroes and dons of mine what kind of self-respecting asian household lets everyone wear shoes in the house i do not understand how that made it through um so but the film is sort of a weird nonsense that's true right? i didn't even think of like, that i didn't even notice that it uh it's sort of it's sweet but it's also a weird nonsense like it makes no it makes no sense but i'm really i i I think i'm glad it exists okay and i i because but just but just to finish that the way reason i'm glad it exists is because so often in conversations around representation and i'm a really you know much as i do a lot of work around representation i get increasingly frustrated that people just think that representation is the end goal like representation is not the end goal Um, but in order for us to have something that is beyond the end goal of representation we need to have like brown romantic leads in films that are fine we need to have brown action heroes in films that are fine we need to have like brown auteurs doing amazing cutting edge artistic work we need to have brown like that for me is diversity and that for me is representation is people people getting to have all of the opportunities of all of the brilliant weak and mediocre white people and still have careers at the end of it i read a lot of your essays and one emotion that kind of stands out uh, i mean from my opinion is that you're very angry about everything uh there's you know we all do respect you know about all these diversity questions and these kind of patronizing youtube titles where it says why diversity matters and you're like why are we still talking about this and there's one essay that you wrote where you are talking about how you told everyone who voted for brexit to f off and you're defending you're defending that kind of speech where it's enough's enough and you just want to be, I mean, at one, it's like you're, if you, if you, if you speak how you feel, you're portrayed as this savage. And, but if you, if you're obedient and you kind of follow the rules of mannerism, nothing gets done. And you talk about how civility is kind of used as a colonial tool and mm. I didn't think of that for a long time until today when I read that. And I'm like, you know what? That's right. Because then I see all these YouTube videos with, with titles that say, why diverse stories matter? And why is it important to include BAME writers? And it's just kind of like, we're still at this level. And maybe I felt like saying F off to everybody. Yeah. I, I, I feel like I've had enough of it all because 
the you know you just have to look at um the black lives matter protests that have been going on um this year and sorry i'm just you're gonna edit out that burp no Um, no (laughs) that's gonna make me very angry (laughs) no i'm joking i'm joking Um, i read an essay about me yeah uh brown history account allows no i'm I'm not afraid judas Um, the judas of brown people (laughs) yeah you know so many people were like you know so many of the the racists who criticized the protests were like oh you know if they just made their point in a civil way um and if they did peaceful protest and all the rest of it and they were like well we tried it we tried Mm -hmm. that nothing happened and there is i think there is something to be said about violence and anger and justifiable violence and this this feeling of enough is enough um you know because the the other thing is like i don't want to always be talking about diversity for me like diversity is like so basic it's not even anything particularly radical that i even ask for which is like more books by brown people on our shelves Mm -hmm. um and it kind of i've seen people in the publishing industry in the uk describe me as a diversity activist and i'm always like i saw that i read that i read that i was going to ask you i literally have it written down what does that mean what does it mean and it sounds important i just think but it's a nonsense, right? It doesn't mean anything. I'm not do like what I'm doing there is not activism. Like the stuff that I do behind the scenes that I don't tweet about that I do like in terms of an organizational level, in terms of youth projects that I do, that is activism, you know, and to have like my tweets about diversity be described as activism. I just think people, this is just a nonsense. And I get so frustrated that that's where we're stuck at. We're stuck at like talking about whether there should be a black James Bond and we're not, we're nowhere near talking about like, we're so, we're so behind in the conversation in the UK. We're still talking about whether there should be a black James Bond that we're not even able to posit the theory that police in the UK can be extremely violent and that there is a problem with mass incarceration of, of black people and working class people from certain South Asian communities. And because we can't get past one, we never arrive at the other. And, um, it it becomes really frustrating. So like I've just had to, I've just had to like step away from it recently and just go. You know what? The stuff that I'm doing that is not online is the stuff that's much more useful. Um, because otherwise, you just get stuck in like being the person whose tweets people put in newspaper articles about nonsense. Um, you know, I I think a lot about um, my uncle my uncle Mesh Mama, who like, who you very kindly covered on the Brown History IG account. And he was the first person in the UK to, to ever bring a case of uh, racial discrimination under the 1968 Race Relations Act. And the thing that I think about all the time is that he, he did that when everyone around him was telling him not to. Like his work was saying, don't do this. You know, his, uh, my family was telling him, don't bring this case. His friends were telling him, don't bring this case. And he was like, no, 
well, I have to do it. It's, it's right. It's what the right thing to do. And then years later, my uncle, <clears throat> excuse me, my uncle and I talk and he's like, you know, after Brexit, he was absolutely heartbroken. He was like, this just proves that they could make whatever laws that they want in this country, but nothing is being done to change people's hearts and minds. You know, we were talking about, so like the case that my uncle brought to brought to court in 1968 was he tried to buy a house and um, they, the, this, the people wouldn't sell the house to him because he was, he was Brown and um, they didn't want to devalue the area. And so he said that was discrimination to court. And then in 2017, there was a case in the UK of this, um, this landlord who refused to rent properties to South Asians because he said they just stank the place out with their curry smell. And, and he was talking to me about it going, I fought this case 50 years ago. What has changed? Nothing. Nothing has been done to change people's hearts and minds. And then like, obviously in the country in the last two years, you've seen what's happened to the Windrush generation where they've been illegally deported and you just think this country is just a nonsense built on a lie. And that's why we're still stuck at the conversation about whether there should be a black James Bond. Are you, are you hopeful? Like, are you optimistic? Do you have Today. faith in the future? <laughs> You're, you have a child, I think, right? And are you hopeful that he's going to grow up in a better environment than you did? It's a good question. I've got, I've got two daughters and two daughters. Um, and I've got, well, I wrote a memoir about parenthood and, and joy and hope that's coming out in February, 2021. Ironically, a, a book, it was supposed to come out in September, but ironically a book that was about finding joy in the world got pushed back six months because of a global pandemic <laughs> that no one could have predicted. And, uh, um, but in the book, I try and find a way forward for my kids. I, I was listening to a, a podcast episode with Zazie Smith talking to Adam Buxton like last week or something. And she was talking about how she just, she felt like kids were just, kids were being robbed of their present because they were fighting and protesting for their right to exist now. But the, but the sad thing was they had no future because of climate change. And she was she was just trying to square those two things in her head and that's depressing it is depressing and and i was thinking about that and i was thinking about like what i was trying to do in the book because i I can't tell my daughters we fucked this world it's yours now you've got to fix it i can't tell them that i have to i have to basically raise them to be boundless and feel the infinite potential of the world and some days I just don't know how to do that. Like, you know, it, the, the longer we stay in lockdown, the longer I just, I have these sort of irrational panics where I'm just like, well, this is just the way everything is now. This is just, I'm never going to see my dad ever again. Like my, my bar's going to die and I'm never going to get to hold her. And, and I've, in those moments, I feel hopeless, but then I find Okay, so today our government did a big U-turn over exam results. I don't know if if it probably didn't make make it make the news outside of the UK, but basically um, because of COVID, all of the all of these kids had their their exams, their A-level exams, decided by an algorithm 
and because of postcodes and like performance of schools loads and loads of kids found themselves downgraded and like not getting their university places and and you know basically screwing their prospects for the future and everyone was like you can't do that you can't can't have an algorithm do this this is this is utterly wrong and preposterous and the government bowed to public pressure and like kids protesting on the streets outside the houses of parliament and they did a big u-turn and they're changing how they're going to award those kids those grades and so every now and then something like that happens and i think yeah the kids are all right but then um and i i just have to stay with that thought because if i don't think that the kids are all right then because they're the ones who are going to inspire my kids you know the kids who are out in the streets now are the are the role models that my kids are going to be looking up to in like two three four years time that's true yeah i i think personally you just have to fake it <laughs> like you have no choice but to be optimistic delusional maybe but <laughs> you just gotta pretend that whatever you do will make a change but that's me when i watched so, so, sorry go ahead i was just gonna say this is the this is the thing that i talk about in in the book in brown baby the the memoir that's coming out next year i try to i try to basically understand that a lot of my day-to-day frustration is because i'm i'm raging at the world on social media and it's very easy to quote tweet Trump and call him a dickhead and feel powerless because nothing changes because he does, he's not like scanning his tweets and going, Oh my God, Nikesh called me a dickhead. Yeah. Maybe he's right. Maybe I am a dickhead. Maybe I need to change my ways. And so when you're flinging that energy out into the world, you know, you're basically throwing, you're throwing a small stone into a huge ocean. Whereas the thing that I've been really thinking about in lockdown and I kind of posited it as a theory in, in the book was what if I just, what is the opposite of quote tweeting Trump? And it's like, well, there's, there's me and fixing myself and there's fixing my family. And then there's thinking about our home space. And then there's thinking about our street and like, yeah, I live on a street with lots of people who I probably don't, agree with politically or i probably don't like the same shows as them or or you know whatever what have you but we all want to live on a street that feels like it's a nice place to live so like there's a, our street so then what does that mean for our our part of the city what does that mean for our city what does that mean for our and so like slowly expanding outwards but, but doing the work and starting with yourself like it's it's really important a friend a friend was uh let me let me just find it find the term that he used because i thought it was really interesting sorry this is really boring for your podcast list no 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 scrolls through whatsapp conversations <laughs> scrolls through whatsapp conversations to find a term surge capacity he was talking about how like there's this thing of like you know our short-term survival instincts give us this surge capacity and so like in the first few months of lockdown a lot of people were like just throwing themselves into the new way of things with with this surge capacity thing but like because nothing has ostensibly changed for like the last six months that surge capacity is now depleted and so a lot of those people who seem to be bossing lockdown in the early days are now probably the ones you need to check in with and text and go are you okay my friend Um, and i definitely 
teeter between those two things all of the time because like on the one hand i'm like i'm doing all this work i'm writing these things and i'm working on these things and developing these things but on the other hand i'm like what's the fucking point um surely i should just be you know trying to trying to just be present with my kids um but it's just a remind i just need to remind myself that i can it is possible to do both you know You've basically caught me at like it's a, it's late night in the UK. I've just run a workshop. I'm mm. slightly spacey and I'm just like rambling like quasi hippie bullshit. I don't <laughs> I don't, th- I don't like, think you're giving yourself enough credit. I mean, I've seen what you do. I've seen it. It, it is really inspiring. I watched your Two Dosas short film. I went on YouTube and I watched the whole thing and I was I was so inspired by it. I thought it was such an amazing piece of work that I literally grabbed. I went to the dollar store. I bought a notebook and I tried to write a script just so that I could like be part of your world. That's how inspiring that oh, movie was. Bro. It's just, it was, oh, I've, never, yeah, I've never seen anything like that. I literally, and I don't know if you remember, but I DM'd you right away and I said, Hey man, I just watched your two dosas and it's, it should be a movie. It should be a TV show. Why hasn't it been something? And you know, do you remember what you wrote back? I think I probably wrote because uh, of racism. <laughs> yes. Yes. And you wrote, you added, um, no one believes a brown guy falling in love. Yeah. Yeah, I really remember that conversation. No, but it's true. Like me and me and Suleiman, we tried to get tried to get it set up as a sitcom with two or three places. And we ultimately boiled down to everyone feeling that the story was too small. The story of two people falling in love was just too small. Um, or a guy like looking for love was too small and it kind of it's it something weird happens when you're constantly told that your stories are too small literally like what the fuck was mad men about it was about like men in the 60s doing their jobs sometimes well sometimes badly that's kind of a small show you know um so like to be, you know, what was Seinfeld was literally about nothing <laughs> and it ran for 11 seasons. Um, so to be told that your stories are too small before you've even got them off the ground, it like, it just reminds you what, who gets to have small stories. And, um, the, you know, that other thing about like, no one believes a brown guy falling in love is because like the Western gaze doesn't allow for us to be joyful. It doesn't allow for us to find happiness my friend Musa Akwango, an amazing writer and amazing poet, uh, said this thing to me a couple of weeks ago that's just really stayed with me. He said, why must, the oppressed, uh, why must the oppressed always be called upon to comment on their oppression? Why aren't the oppressors being called upon to comment on their oppressiveness? And that's really stayed with me because, because it, there is this thing about, you know, you know, we're all only ever called upon to talk about issues that are specific to our community. And yes, there is this sort of like tension that yes, we want to be able to talk about issues specific to our community. But at the same time, we don't want that to be the only call we get. And sometimes I just want to write about happiness and joy and love. And, um, you know, you you asked me, am I hopeful? And I really feel like at the moment, the stuff that I'm working on, it has to, it has to be hopeful because even if I'm not the message that I give to people has to be one of hope. It has to be one of radical empathy. It has to be one of 
um, joy because I can't keep writing about oppression. It's not good for me. It's not good. You know, you, you, you would like, I know you were joking, but you were like, you seem like an angry guy. I'm like, I wasn't joking. I was giving you an opportunity to say, I'm not angry. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> there's, there's a bit at the end of the first Avengers film where Captain America says to Bruce Banner, like, can you do that thing? Can you do that Hulk out thing? Uh, can you get angry? Um, because there's his monsters flying towards him and Bruce Banner starts walking away from him, tears his shirt off, starts hulking out and he turns back to Captain America and he says, do you know what my secret is? And Captain America says, what? And he goes, the secret is I'm always angry. And that's how I feel a lot of the time. I'm always angry. But how I, how I dispense that anger has been something that I've been thinking about a lot because, you know, I... I personally, you know, I'm I'm not I'm not going to sit here and tell people how to utilize their social media, but I personally feel like my anger is not best place going after individuals when they fuck up. My anger because like I can get into certain rooms and have certain conversations at certain levels, my anger has to be directed at systems where possible. Um and systems within the industry where I hold a wield a little bit of power and it's really important that I take that anger and I stop like scatter scattering it across my timeline and like focus it in in a productive way in the sorry the windows i heard a door i heard a door shut yeah no i'm i'm right i'm right by i don't my my place goes straight onto the street and when the windows open, it sounds like there are people in the house mm. and I should be the only one awake right now. Um, the, yeah. So like, it's really important that I just utilize that anger in a way that is going to be productive in some way. You have done a lot of productive work. I mean, you have two book collection of essays, two books called The Good Immigrant and there's the American version, The Good Immigrant. And I don't know if you were trying to be political with those books, but it comes off as political because it's about different people of color who come in and talk about race, um, feminism, um, being a minority. And so there is, I mean, that, I don't know if it had any, I mean, you should feel good about that. You basically did what I'm doing on Instagram, but you did it in a book form where you took collections of work and you brought it together for people to kind of read and see what's going on. Yeah. It's interesting with those books because the first one, the first one I did was basically like, um, it was basically a project to show people in publishing where the good writers were. So many times like we'd go, where are all the black and brown writers? And they'd go, well, we don't know where to find the talent. And I was like, okay, well, here's a book full of talent. So it was like, and then it became a book, of, you know, once it became popular and it kind of grew beyond that sort of small um, thing of like trying to, trying to talk to publishers, it became a book about uh, inspiring young people, young people of color to kind of feel like, that book was holding a mirror up to them because we kind of wrote it in a political vacuum. We did, we wrote it before Brexit and before Trump. And the thing that people always, the the interesting thing about that book is people always talk about like, Oh, it's just such a great collection of personal experiences. I learned so much. And I was like, fuck off. Like, first of all, it's not a collection of personal experiences. We were all writing literature. We were all writing great works of literature. And this is the problem that brown and black writers have when they write about political issues. Like, 
so much time is spent focusing on the rhetoric and not on the fluidity of their words on their sentence structure on like the imagery and the the symbolism and the metaphors that they're using and like we were all writing beautiful pieces of literature they weren't personal experiences and the second thing was like we didn't put that book together to teach anyone shit like it's not an educational book for fucking white people to go oh i i read this and i'm no longer racist and like um you know like the other day i i before i came off twitter i was i tweeted something about like oh um how are all those unread uh piles of anti-racism books uh, on on next to you on next to your bed get coming along and uh someone replied and said some of us are still reading and learning and uh, and i wanted to reply and go you've run out of time get on with it like um but but the, it just made me realize that like we didn't write that, we we didn't write that first book to teach people anything we wrote that first book to hold a mirror up to young people of color who felt disconnected from their country um and disconnected from their culture and felt like they were in in an in-between world and that for me really worked now the second book the the good american version yeah 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 the interesting thing about that book was that was a political book because now we had like we had the success of the first book we had um so we had like um we had this thing to kind of live up to. We also had to think about the title because like the word immigration means different things in North America and it do- than it does in, um, in England, like, and also a sarcastic subversive title in England might not translate in America. Um, so we had to think about who we were going to um, approach. And the other thing was like the big thing that people couldn't ignore in that second book was Trump. And mm-hmm. so the book became Trump. Trump was very present in that book in the way, in the way that Brexit wasn't present in the first book. And so I think that's probably why that first book blew up in the way that it did. And the second book, you know, it still, it still found a huge audience, but it, it still feels like it's of a time and over the place than the first book was. What is the difference between immigrant, the word immigrant in the UK and the word immigrant in the USA? Well, I don't think it's a difference in the, in the meaning of the word. I think it's just a different history of immigration. So like, you know, while they're, you know, with the, with the British empire and like the history of slavery and stuff like, and there were slaves in the UK, there was, you know, in the 1950s, 1940s, 1950s, post, post Second World War, there was like a wave of immigration from the Caribbean islands and from, uh, from different African countries and from South Asia as well. And people were invited here to work to help to rebuild the country. And so, and so those immigrant communities were so much like, and because of the country is so much smaller, like those immigrant communities were so much more connected. But like when we, spoke to um writers of color in the u.s you know we, we we had to basically be like you know there were you know the conversation around immigration is specific and different to the conversation around race in a way that like the two are much more intertwined in the uk um whereas like in the u.s like because of because of slavery um uh the and 
because of issues of race and r- racism and immigration they all feel like separate parts of like a really big conversation and so like we had to basically with that second book just be really specific in what we were looking for with people you know we couldn't really ask like we couldn't really ask black people in america who were descended from slaves to write in a book called the good immigrant that would just feel weird right Um, and we had to just be sensitive to that you know um did it reach the same amount of success that the first one did are you more proud of the second one or the first one more i think that i think they're both really i think they're both amazing pieces of work for what they are you know um the first one continues to surprise me with like how it keeps finding audiences and the second one um i just think the quality of writing in the second one is just unbelievable we got some amazing writers in there um and i'm really proud of both of them you know before i before the instagram account i always imagined people high profile south asians were they've made it but now that i'm i guess somewhat instagram famous and i'm speaking to all these people in in their in their industries and they've like kind of made it have reached some kind of successful position the more I get to know them, the more it feels like they're all kind of stuck in their own little cages and they need as much help as I do to get somewhere. And it's really depressing. You know, I always imagine if I were to meet Riz Ahmed, he would kind of, you know, put a wand on me and I'll become successful too and all the doors will open. But as I'm getting more into this, I see that he's also kind of struggling too and you're struggling. And even though no matter how hard we work, and how much followers we have and how much money we make, it just seems like we just go back to this hole until a white person comes in and allows us to do what we want to do. And then once we've made them their money, we go back in. Because if you look at Danny Boyle's yesterday, and even though he was the lead actor and the director was very credible and then he was like an A-list director, Himesh Patel hasn't had much lead roles after that. And he's very talented. And I don't know. It's, it's, I don't know. I don't know what my question is, but that's how I see it. Am I wrong to see it that way? I think when you are a person of color in the arts, in the West, in the UK and in America and North America and Canada and stuff, you have to make a choice. At some point, if you're lucky, a white person will open a door and invite you in. You can either go in and close the door behind you or you can go in and leave the door open but walk away from it um or you can go in say to the white guy you go on ahead i'm following i'll follow you jam your foot in the door get your megaphone out and stop inviting other people in and i do think that there is a part of me that wants to be the latter the last one of those for as much as i can because for me it's not about me being successful or me having to not struggle or me being the one it's about all of us having opportunities because like i've been because because of the good immigrant i've had people like contact me and offer me weird weird things that like literally because they don't know another brown writer who could do these things and i've always found it very useful to always have a list of like 10 black and brown writers who I could go ask these people 
this isn't for me um because like it's not it's not a case of me like wanting to hoover up all of the opportunities it's a case of like all of us having equal opportunities no one wants special treatment they just want equal treatment you know and so yeah so look but to kind of speak to that point to speak to that heaviness that i feel that that you perhaps feel when you have these conversations is because like when i think about what i'm here to do i'm here to write i'm here to write books i'm here to write tv shows i'm here to write essays and short stories uh, and the occasional spoken word piece that no one should ever hear um but i get i get to spend if i'm lucky 45 minutes of my day every single day i get to write and that's it now the rest of my day i am working on projects to diversify an industry i'm working on i mentor people i run i run youth projects i do events at schools and universities i'm doing all of this other stuff to kind of make to cast the widest net possible that this is something for all of us and the thing that suffers the most is my ability ability to spend time developing my craft and being the person that i'm meant to be and the true tragedy of this is like phoebe waller bridge and nick hornby and like all these white writers they're not sitting around having these conversations they're sitting around being a hundred percent brilliant at the stuff that they do they get to just be writers and just be the personalities behind the writing and they get to spend a hundred percent of their job doing that stuff and so the reality is like i feel like i get held back i feel like i work twice as hard i feel like i don't get paid as much as i should be and i i feel like i get to spend not as much time developing my craft as other people and i get to never talk about my craft because i'm always asked to talk about diversity activism or whatever the hell that means and so there is this feeling that people of color are held back because they're having to do all of this extra work to make the the industries their industries seem accessible for young people and actually the real slack that could be taken up could be by white people and yet and yet and yet where are they they're at home sitting on a pile of unread anti-racism reading this books full circle damn that was good uh i wish i could talk like you <laughs> i was thinking about this podcast and, I, and coming on it and just you know I, lo- I love what you do and like just that i have discovered so much amazing stuff your particular like the one thing that stayed with me was um the story of iqbal singh and the beautiful baby of bombay song and him joining the navy i was amazing but i was thinking about doing this podcast and i was like this is the podcast i'm gonna come on and just spill my guts and just please I, I, I was like, please i was like i was like i'm gonna run a workshop for two hours and i'm coming i'm gonna come and do the brown history podcast and i'm just gonna lay it all out on the fucking line i'm just I'm, no fucks left to give kind of vibes because um you know if I guess if you're a young person, if you're a young person listening to this, I don't want you to, I don't want you to listen to this and think there isn't space for you. I want you to think I deserve that space. I'm being held back from that space or no, I don't want you to think I'm being held back from that space. I just want you to feel like these spaces are owed to you. Take these spaces and don't take no for an answer.